Hey, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How, how about you? Fantastic. Um, busy, but uh, it's better than the alternative. How's Dublin treating you? Uh, Dublin is uh, surprisingly warm and sunny at the moment, which is causing uh, a lot of Irish people to kind of lose their minds and be walking around in shorts and t-shirts. And it's it's funny. So my wife is Spanish. Um, and here it's it's like 19 degrees, which is shorts and t-shirt weather for everybody in Ireland. But all the Spanish and Italian students that are here are looking at the Irish going, guys, this is winter weather. You're still insane. Like it's 40 degrees in Spain right now. And that's when we're wearing uh, shorts and, and uh, T-shirts. So, uh, it's all about perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, speaking of perspectives, let's start with uh, the perspective of life that you have today and the context of whoever you are today. How did you become the, the Stephen that we know today? Uh, wow. I mean, there's a lot of... To, to be who I am today is really uh, an amalgamation of whatever experiences that I've had, the interactions that I've had, the quality of the, the people that I've been privileged to, to interact with who've had an impact on me, um, right up from, from parents and family life to uh, school, college, work, things that went wrong, things that went right, lucky breaks, um, and learning and, and I mean, I, I, I'm not a huge reader, but I'm, I'm a huge, um, devourer of information from people. So like podcasts, um, audio books, and especially meeting people, having conversations with people and what I can glean from that. Um, and that shapes an awful lot of my thinking, which then shapes my personality and my behavior. And that shapes where I am today. Awesome. Great to know that. Um, so I want to start us off like right with the topic that we, we both want to talk about. So um, can you explain like what psychometric assessments are uh, and how can they actually help all the businesses and startups in particular? Yeah, so psychometrics are anything really to do with um, testing anything to, around your personality, around your abilities, anything psycho to, to do with the brain, not psychotic. That's a, a different thing. Um, but psyche and psycho are all to do with your personality, your abilities, your interests, anything that measures those traits are the, the blanket term is psychometric. And how did you end up becoming a psychometric um, analyst or a coach? Or how do you define yourself? Uh, by accident, I suppose. Uh, no, it's so my lesson was an occupational psychologist. My, my father's an occupational psychologist. I've grown up in two family businesses. So um, we had another family business, which was uh, an English language school where we taught English as an international to international students. And we had this other business, which was about career guidance and about selection for companies and, and helping teams develop. For 30, for 20 years, I was much more focused in the other business, but in the last kind of five or six years, I've come over, I bought this business and I'm getting more involved now. So in order to, to really understand that, I did a couple of courses. I did some, a lot of reading, a lot of research. Um, and I've done, um, the, the two big assessments that we sell now are Hogan assessments, which is about your personality, uh, and understanding the different facets of who you are as a person and your, how you are under pressure, what are your values, what are your motives, and how can we help people either to select the right people or to coach the people in a way that, that is going to be meaningful for them. And then another one is the AEM cube from Human Insights, which is about where your natural um, preferences are in terms of teams. So how well your teams are going to interact with each other, where their strengths lie and where we can position them within the company. Um, so if we put the two of those together, the analogy is, imagine you've got a football team. You need to know each player, where you're going to put them, where their natural contribution is going to be, whether they're a striker, a defender, a midfielder, a goalie, whatever then once you know where they're best situated in the team to be able to be successful, then we get into the personality to help them to grow in that position to be able to be more. And how actually do you do that? Like, is it, is it more like uh, you ask a couple of questions, you, you have some exercises, like what's the, what's the whole process looks like? So for both, for most psychometrics, uh, they are, um, they're extrinsic. So we have two ways of, of kind of discovering people's personality or people's best attributes. And it's by observation, by talking, uh, by chatting with them and kind of going, okay, well, in, based on my experience, this person is extroverted. And based on my experience and what I've learned before, this person is probably going to be better under pressure. This person is going to be uh, very good at, at forming relationships. Or actually, this person's a little bit cold. Those are ways that we as, as non-psychologists 
we make decisions about people and we assess people's personalities. We assess people's, um, uh, their, their best contributions and things like that. The problem with that is this, this phrase that I use a lot is we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge other people's by other people by their behavior. So everything that we're looking at is through the lens of how we view the world. So two different people from two different perspectives could be looking at the same person and have two very different views on them. I don't know how many times you and your friend, uh, you've been friends with somebody else and they can't stand them, for example. like this, We're all looking at each other through our own lens. Then we have the completely objective, pure, analytical, everybody does the same test. Then we see where they are in the norm group, where they are on the, the bell curve. And then the people who are here on the bell curve, they're generally seen as this. The people who are here on the bell curve are generally seen as this. Or when we get into teams, where are they on this grid that we use? Are they more uh, relationship focused? Are they more content focused? Are they more optimizing or are they more um, exploratory? Like what? where are they naturally um, suited based on the ecosystem of, of the business? Um, so what we do is we run people through the assessments. So we, we pick the right assessments to... There are hundreds of assessments that you can use depending on what you're actually looking for. Uh, so we pick the right assessments to be able to go, okay, well, to measure this and to get an idea of this, these are the assessments that we should use. The candidates go down through the assessments, a couple of hundred questions, but it takes about 20 minutes to do each assessment. It's, it's not that long. Um, and then we get the reports and then we put everything together in the context of what the company is looking for. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, startups, for example. Um, we've done work with startups where the, the, the founding three members, for example, are highly ambitious, really gung-ho, want to drive the business, want to get things going, but they're actually in, in, in a very service-heavy industry. Like they, they, Their team is very service-orientated, very collaborative, very, very much interested in the community and everything else, whereas the founders, while they have that interest, their personality is much more driving, driving, driving. So- we sat down with them. We said, look, you are going to have to get a manager in between you and your team because you are going to shoot every one of them because they're not moving fast enough for you because you're looking at things differently. But they're, this is the type of person you need in this high-touch service industry. And you, this is the type of person you need in the founding team to be able to drive it on. So understanding where those, I mean, some of this is unconscious biases. Some of it is um, just a perspective on how you're looking at business. And understanding that from an external point of view, what's the best way to to get things aligned? Amazing. How accurate do you think these um, assessments are? I'm, I I know I'm biased because we use them all the time, but they are outrageously. Um, statistically, with Hogan, they say there's a 95% correlation between how you're seen and how other people are seen, so that they have a really high accuracy rate. To be honest, the Hogan assessments have so many really, really smart PhDs. I've met loads of them. I've been in their office. I've been in their their center and I've met loads of the, the people who are involved in the data side of things. They're way more intelligent than I am. Um, and they can they can go through the statistical um, relevancy and they they're in the presentations, they talk about, oh, well, it's N is this and there's a 0.2% deviation or there's this, that and the other. For me, that is, I, I start to glaze over. It's not my personality. But when I'm using this with clients, every time there might be uh, of a, the 27 scales between one and a hundred, and you go through that just on the personality alone, so every maybe 10 people, somebody might say, oh, the way you describe it there, I thought I'd be a little bit further to the left on this one or a little bit further to the right on this one. But everything else, yeah, yeah, that's spot on. Or my God, I just had an argument with my girlfriend about exactly this problem that you said that I'm likely to have last week. So the accuracy, and I find this from a practical point of view when I'm talking to people, the accuracy is uh, incredible. Again, coming from the startup world, coming from that uh, you know job-related entrepreneurship background, um, how often do you see the founders or a group of founders, co-founders, and their mismatch? Like, how often do you see that mismatch? Yeah, I mean, just to give you, yeah, just to give you somewhat of a context. So this is this is what I think. I think a lot of the times uh, when you're finding a co-founder co and I have this weird term that I call a uh, co-founder market, you know, fit or something like that. It's just, you know, you, you have a right third market fit. So, you know, when you need to take it to the market and you need to scale that. But at the same point in time, you have, uh, you need to find the right co-founder for yourself. 
a lot of people what they do is so uh, I am good at business or maybe on the tech side you're good on the business side and then okay so we kind of complement each other and you know that's how usually people are doing that but there's got to be more you know comprehensive complicated way of doing the same things how so how often do you think people are a mismatch one they do not know that or two is uh they just like yeah like we're in this together so probably not going to bother that so i see the mismatch probably more so with people who are first time startup entrepreneurs because they they just think oh well, we're buddies we've been hanging out since we were 12 uh you do that i do this and we'll get on very well um really for me it's not the technical expertise is the defining deciding factor or the defining factor in a good um co-founder relationship it's the values and the vision um if you're looking at things so you could have and i've seen it a lot of times so i've been involved for for 10 years with the global student entrepreneur awards which is um for university students who own and operate their own businesses so they're young entrepreneurs a lot of startups a lot of ambition a lot of energy but not a lot of experience so the part of it is the the whole competition is helping students to see entrepreneurship as a viable career path as opposed to uh, the traditional engineering business law marketing whatever um so i've seen those relationships break down because they have they've just thought about oh my god this is amazing we can build this really cool app and take it to market and we can be on our we can have matching yachts in 3 years time but one co-founder might be more risk averse than the other or one co-founder might be more look I'm more into bringing brilliance to the world and bringing this amazing quality to the world whereas the other co-founder be like okay yeah I'm interested in that but I want to get paid um so having those conversations around values and where the company is ultimately where the two or the three or the six or whatever it is six is probably a bit much but where everybody wants that business ultimately to go in the next 10 years is really really important and everybody needs to be on the same page um i will be here times of you you hear these stories of oh my god this guy had the opportunity to be in this startup with these people who raised a their unicorn and they raised a billion or whatever if that person was actually involved in it the company might not have actually gotten to that stage so it's not that oh my god this person missed out on joining that company it's that person probably wasn't the right fit for the company to go to where it was no disrespect or anything to the person who didn't get into that but their skill set their values wouldn't have aligned with what the other people were doing so they wouldn't have uh been successful in that environment anyway they're better off going and doing their own thing which makes more sense to them i do see people who have gone through that once and have gone or twice possibly have gone through the co-founder thing where they've had uh differences I do see them being a bit more cautious, a bit more aware of the fact that look this is a, this is a marriage you're going to be spending more time with this person than you're spending with your partner, your romantic partner for the next 5 years. Yeah, I mean, you've got to find a way to make sure that if you have a disagreement about something, you've got the the level of respect and in some cases love, admiration, whatever it is to be able to get past that issue. Um and Crucial Conversations is a really great book for this to be able to to get past the issue and move on to what's best for the organization um but i see people who have been burnt once or twice before being much more wary of the values and the vision in their co-founders uh so the values are i mean there are hundreds of values that you can have in an organization um and there are hundreds of values that you can have personally um but really it comes down to what are you ultimately looking to accomplish so the, there's plenty of exercise i have a, a fantastic friend uh who wrote a book called Brave Raising Kids to be Brave Smart Kind he runs a company called the Brave Smart Kind company PJ Brady he has this whole workshop on uh core values and company values and things like that and he he is an expert in this um and he really knows how to help people to dig out their own core values to really understand and specialize their own core values because He and I used to have really interesting conversations. We still do have very interesting conversations, but we had this when I was looking at my own core values. It was a difference between what is our core value and what are things that we value because they're two very different things and a lot of the time people talk about these are things that I value. So they're my core values, but actually so we the example that I had when we started doing our core values, one of the things we came up with was fun. We want to have a fun environment. 
And that's the very different definition of that's something that we value, not necessarily a core value. So let's say we took on um, a CFO who was going to be crunching the numbers and really going through, making sure that all the details were done and we were and trying to uh, avoid as much risk as possible. That person could be absolutely key to building up the business and doing really well in the business, but they're not like making jokes and um, going out for lunch and and uh, wearing in like fun hats and things like that. So fun is not a core value to them, but they are absolutely vital and necessary for the business. But if fun is a core value of your business, you've got to fire that person because they don't meet, they're not fun. Whereas actually having fun, that can be a culture that you build, but it's not a core value. It's not something you're going to hire somebody on or fire somebody because of. Uh, so the core values that we have are um, humbly proud, uh, inclusively empathetic, and do the right thing. So we have this, so do the right thing. Let's say somebody mistreats a client or mistreats a, an employee or um, is operating in a way which is maybe in the best interest of the business, but really isn't, is, is not being fair to the other side. That's something that's somebody that we've got to cut from the business because it's a core value of ours to be able to 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 be doing the right thing for the people for their for our employees for our suppliers whatever even if it hurts us like if we've made a mistake and we've got to pay for it that's part of what we do because we want to be doing the right thing in the in the the ecosystem uh, so that's a core value as opposed to something that you value. Uh, and then the vision is really where do you see the company going? Like, what what's the ultimate vision for the company? Is it to to sell and in, in, to flip in five years' time? Is it to build as something that you can work in and enjoy doing for the next thirty years and possibility of handing it off to family? Is it that you want to make as much money as you can in this market? Because really, what you want to do is give it free to this market. Uh, so, what's the vision? What are you trying to do? And so long as you align on that. And you've got the same values. It's amazing how far you can go together. Okay. Uh, speaking of that, do you think it's, it's very important for every founder? Like first-time founders probably come across this problem more often than than you know people who have mer- started multiple companies. Is to have an exit strategy. Is to have a vision of getting out of that business. Well, I would say that a vision and an exit strategy are two very different things. Uh, they're not necessarily the same thing. So I have a vision for my company. I have a vision for my business, which is thirty years long. Um, I don't see me exiting from the business. I don't. I've grown up in an entrepreneurial family. My parents are in their seventies and eighties. They're still involved in the business. I won't say they're daily active in the business, but they're very involved in the business. And uh, that's just what I think. Like it's it's being involved because we believe in the vision of the business. Like our whole business, our our this business is about matching the right people with the right careers. So we do selection, we do career guidance, we're helping people. We see ourselves as helping people to have more fulfilling lives. So I would want to continue doing that for as long as I'm physically able to do it. There are other, uh, I mean, there are projects that I've been involved in and it's kind of like, yeah, okay, let's build it up. But then once it gets to a point on, so the the innovation curve, the S-curve, once it gets to the point when it's all about optimizing, I'm not the right person for that. So let's pass, let's sell that to somebody else because it's, um, it's something that they're better suited to doing. I'm much more interested in the energy of the startup world. So the neither is wrong, in my opinion. Um, it just depends on what you're ultimately trying to do. I have some friends who are very successful serial entrepreneurs who they are they get so ignited and passionate by the start of coming up with the idea, innovating, getting it ready to market. And then as it's going up the trajectory, as it's scaling up, they go, right, well, now we're getting into optimizing and we're getting into like minutiae changes. And yeah, I'm not really, I'm not excited by that, but it has the potential to make millions. So I'm going to sell it to a company, either a VC or another business or a competitor or something like that, who is, their mentality is we want to take in businesses and optimize them to make them as profitable as possible. They're the right people to see that seat, to, to look after that season of the business. And then the the person who founded it goes, right, now I have some cash. I can try an even bigger idea or try an even bigger project. Uh, so again, nothing wrong with any stage of that escrow. Speaking of uh, founders and entrepreneurs and people who are like 
getting into this habit of building one business after another business and another business. There has to be a certain type of these people. So in, in, in your psychometric evaluations, what do you think, what, which, like what's the trade that all these people have in common or like what's the type of personality they have? I mean, it's like, it's an undying, you can say a pursuit, like, okay, I'm going to start something and I sell it off. Uh, and a lot of people will say, yeah, okay, you know, I just made a generational wealth or something. You probably made an exit, I don't know, 30 million, 50 million or like whatever. And then you're like, okay, I'm just retired for the rest of my life. A lot of people actually don't do that. What they start doing is like, okay, so this is thing number one. We're going to go try an even bigger thing, even bigger thing. So uh, with no end in sight. Or a smaller thing in a different Exactly. Or exactly. To, to, so I would say, so for me, and, and Hogan has this as well, there are, broadly speaking, there are six different leadership styles. And I think entrepreneurs fall into one of these leadership styles. Um, so there's the, the typical, the results leader. This is the one that everybody kind of recognizes as the go-getter results, KPIs at all costs, everything, all competition, all dominating, all like the, the typical, uh, what some people refer to as the A-type personality, which I don't really agree that that's the, the ideal for, uh, for an entrepreneur. But that's one leadership style and it works in certain cultures. So, um, Jeff Bezos might be seen as a results leader because it's all KPIs. It's all like, how can we push this and get more of this and be able to push in this direction? But you've also got five other leadership styles. So you've got six leadership styles in total. There's a results leader, there's a process leader, data leader, people leader, social leader, and thought leader. These are all different leadership styles. So if you take a data leader, for example, very different type of organization that they're going to build. And if you look at uh, Sergey Brin, for example, the, the Google founders, the Alphabet founder, the, the heads of Alphabet, very data-driven, not the gung-ho, let's go get stuff done and, and at all costs be in front of the camera and do everything else. They're looking at data and they're making decisions based on that and they're building their company around that. Highly successful. Lots of startups who are in the data and the AI world are into this. They're not the gung-ho, uh, break things fast and, and keep moving. Uh, then you have the process leaders. So process leaders are people who are building up and they're they're not they're very risk averse. They want to make sure that they have mitigated as many risks as possible and they have a process that they follow and other people follow. Um, if you think of, uh, you've heard of Zara, it's in Europe and America, the clothing brand. So Zara, um, Amancio Ortega, massive process leader. If you Google him, there's probably about three photographs online that have that you can see what he looks like because he's very private, very reserved, not in the limelight at all. Huge company that's built on his processes and built on the processes that he and his team have built. Then you come to things like a thought leader. Thought leader typically would have been somebody like Steve Jobs kind of coming up with stuff. And the people who are thought leaders, they tend to really go to the creativity side of things and bringing a business forward and pushing it into what the realms of what's possible. Typically, they are god awful at actually executing on stuff. So they need stuff. They need other people around them. Um, then you've got the social leaders, for example. Social leaders have really big networks, and they're much more the the people connections. And oh, I can introduce you to over here, and I can do this. And oh, you're looking for this? Yeah, we can provide that. And oh, you're looking for that? We can't provide that, but they can, and they might be able to give us something in the future. So operating in that realm, and then you have the people leader. So the people the leaders who are very much focused on the internal people in their organization and helping them to grow so as they reach their potential on behalf of the business. So I don't think genuine, from the people that I've met, I've, I've met some very shy, successful entrepreneurs. I've met some very outgoing, successful entrepreneurs, met some outgoing, not so successful entrepreneurs because they rub people the wrong way. I've met some shy, not successful entrepreneurs because they don't, they can't convey the passion of getting stuff across the line because of the team that they have. If they had a different type of team, they could be very successful. So I don't know if I subscribe to the idea that you've got to be this gung-ho, hyper-focused KPI leader, because I think there are traits beyond that, and there are personality drives and, and values and things that people want to grow. And, and um, I, I don't want to say traits, but there are habits that they have that they've developed that help them to become successful in whatever field they're in so you think uh, everybody can be successful if they develop the right 
you want. So right habits and stuff like that. Right? The 80-20 principle applies to this as well. Like 80% of people can do 80% of the jobs that exist. So there are some hyper, hyper specialized careers. Um, brain surgeon, for example, it takes a particular type of person to be able to be a brain surgeon. But you can be a hugely successful entrepreneur. I mean, we've seen in the States the 1-800-GOT-JUNK guys I mean, or the student painters, these types of businesses that started up, which are not bleeding edge, artificial intelligence, SaaS, crypto, whatever. They're really solid businesses that are run by really solid people who have a drive who want to build their business. Then you have ultra successful, like the open AI, like bleeding edge technology that has lots of investment coming in. So... I don't think that there is a one type, this is the best type of entrepreneur. There are so many options out there that you, you got to find what fits for you, what makes sense for you and how you can develop and how you can grow uh, and understanding who you are is the first step in actually dis- in, in understanding what's the best way for you to grow. And- okay, totally agree to that. Uh, speaking of, you know, finding the right fit, like building teams, actually, a lot of the times, and this is just like on, based on personal observation. I think a lot of the time people are looking to hire, founders are looking to hire their first five hires or like whoever, probably, you know, when, when they're, they, they probably found the product market fit or maybe the MVP is there and then now they're starting to hire. A lot of people don't know who they need to hire. Like I, I personally believe that like a lot of people don't know like who they need to hire. And the reason behind that is they do not, uh, so they have certain expectations in their mind so one is like they're like not able to deliver the same thing in job requirement. And two is they probably are not good enough of a, I don't want to say judge of a character, but probably that's the right word for that. So, uh, so yeah. People, people suck at it. People suck at Yes. Because we, ha- we all have unconscious biases. We all have, the, the, like there's no getting around it. It's the way the human brain works. There's lots of talk uh, like uh, diversity, uh, what is it? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like there's a huge amount to talk about this. But the way the human brain works is we all have unconscious bias. We have labels that we have to put on people. Otherwise, we would have to have so much cognitive power to be able to make decisions on a daily basis. It's impossible. Um, So people, when they're hiring, they have horrendous judge of character. Um, I say, oh my God, you like the same sports team as I do. You must be an amazing CFO. It's like, that is not how that works at all. Um, So... Really the best way for, for founders, for entrepreneurs, for startups in particular, is you've got to come at this clinically. You've got to have a look and it's got to be um, what we call competency-based interviewing and company, competency-based selection, where you're going, okay, where is the company right now? Where do we want to go to? Like, where is it that we want to go to? What are the things that we need to do? What are the activities that need to be accomplished? And like clinical, we're not talking about personality here just yet. We're talking about um, what are the steps that need to be done? Um, do we need to have uh, robust marketing plans done up? Do we need to have KPIs done up? Do we need to have salespeople who are going to be able to deliver on those KPIs? And it's not, you're not hiring for where you are now. You're hiring for where you want to be in five years. And this person is going to help you to get to that point. That's the mentality you need to have. You need to be saying, um, I, need a, I, need a, um, I need a marketing person right now because I'm just swamped with marketing. No, you need a marketing person right now because you're swamped with marketing and your goal is to 5X your business in, in three years' time and that marketing person is going to be responsible for getting you to that point. So you're not hiring somebody who's junior to you. You're hiring somebody who's smarter than you in this area to be able to get you to that point. Or your technical people, I just I can't get my head around AI. I can learn it and I can go through it, but actually I need to take on somebody who really understands this, who gets our what, what we're trying to plug into it to be able to have this SaaS as, as automated as possible in three years' time. That's how you need to be hiring. What are the steps? What are the things that that person needs to be able to bring to the table? And then you have the personality of, well, they need to be, I need them to be a self-starter. I need them to be outgoing or I need them, I don't care if they're outgoing because I'm fine with them just putting the head down. I actually want somebody who puts the head down and make sure that they get through all the process. So that's when you can start looking at the personality side of things. But the first thing is, what ultimately is this person going to be doing from a competency-based point of view? Then what's the personality? Yeah, 100% to that. One thing that I think is, uh, which is maybe a, a prequel to that, is a founder needs to have uh, a self-awareness, like huge level of self-awareness in order to make the right decision, in order to figure out the right person to hire. And most people do not have that. So coming to, coming to that, like somebody made a, bad hire or like whatever 
one thing that I learned is good CEOs slash founders or person who are leading an organization, they are decision-making machines. Like that's all they do. They come to the job, make decision, come to the job, make decision. But one thing that I've seen a, a lot of people, again, making mistakes is they delay the firing process so much that they kind of turn the whole thing into a toxic environment. The whole organization is like toxicity is like everywhere. Okay. So, uh, that person is talking behind, uh, you know, leadership's back. Leadership is, you know, backward. Like, so all of that stuff. Question number one is, well, you know, in, in your opinion, what do you think about that? And two is, how do you think people can actually avoid slash mitigate that? I mean, it, you hear this thing all the time of uh, hire slow, fire fast. This is one of these tropes that's, that's trucked out all the time. I think most businesses, most CEOs, because... A business is ultimately just a collection of people that hopefully are rowing in the same direction towards the same vision. So when people get involved, stuff immediately gets far more complex. And it's it's easy. And I've been in the position where I was going, oh yeah, they're not working out, they're not great. Just fire them and be done with it. But actually when you're in the trenches, you're day-to-day in it and you have relationships with these people and you know that there's some things that they do well and they have... Uh, if they go, they're going to have an impact on this part of the business. They might have an impact on these people that are still there. It's not as easy as just going, nah, get rid of them. But unfortunately, it has to be done. Uh, and if you're like me and you're high on interpersonal scale, for example, where you're, you are interpersonal sensitivity, where you're really, uh, you enjoy engaging with people, you enjoy having great conversations with people, you want everyone to get along and motivate and move in the same direction. People like that will lose sleep for days when it comes to having to get rid of somebody because it's the worst thing possible for the karma of that person. But it has to be done. And it's you, you've got to really be looking at, and as a CEO, as a founder, where are we going? Is this person, um, and, and I mean, I've had arguments um, with people, and not arguments, but uh, uh, let's say uh, open and frank discussions with people about is this person a net negative or a net positive to your business? Because everybody has good and bad qualities. Everybody, no matter how amazing your A player is, there's some stuff that rubs people the wrong way. So everybody has net positive and net negative. And it's the culture that is like, they could be a great salesperson, but they're toxic. We've all had that example. Um, Is that net positive, net negative? Are they a little bit toxic that you can kind of have a word with them and it might take you every month or two, you've got to take them out for dinner or something and go, look, remember, stop saying this and that. And it's, I know this, we're working on that, you're a key player. And then they row back in. Or are they so negative all the time that it's actually affecting other people's sales? So their sales are high because other people's are low. Uh, is that person a net positive or a net negative? If they're a net negative, you're just, you're delaying the inevitable, which is causing pain for everybody further down the line. And is, don't get me wrong, it is not easy to do. For, and for some personality types, it's the worst thing. Like, they'd rather close the business. I think that I think there's a movie, uh, for, forgot the name, and, and the whole movie is based on, there's this one guy, forgot the character as well, and he goes, consults with the companies, and he does, like, mass layoffs for them. Like, okay, I'm the guy, I'm going to fire you 500 people, something like that, because that's a personality yeah. type. They are just, like, Probably have sick, you know, uh, thick skin or something. Uh, George, George Clooney's, yeah, yeah. In something about yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Air, up in the air, yeah. I think. So, uh, so he, he does that, and I was like, yeah, okay. So there's there has to be a certain type of personality where it's like, okay, so if I, you know, I'm that kind of person, I can do that. Right? Absolutely. And so here's the thing on on this particular personality scales, for example, which is called interpersonal sensitivity on Hogan. People over to the right really good at forming these quick connections, really good at understanding people, reading social cues really good at engaging with people and they can be very, uh, they can have great conversations with people. People over to the left can be seen as cold and blunt and uh, not caring. But actually, the people over to the right are great when times are good, but the people over the left are the ones that you want in your team when times are tough and you've just got to get stuff done. So there's no, the, the, the ideal is not necessarily to be on either end. It's there are different cultures and different contexts that require different people. That's why Having these scales uh, is so important and you can have, you might want a lot of your marketing people to be maybe not even too interpersonally sensitive because then they find it hard to ask for the sale because it's all about the relationship. 
Whereas you might want your accountants way over to the left on this one because you want them to be cold and calculating about the numbers because that's the side of the business we need to go. So that's why the personality in, in selection is really uh, key and, and useful. Yeah, one one thing that I want to ask you, and again, very personal reason, probably a lot of people have experienced this, maybe somebody has not experienced that, but again, personal experiences. So I think there are people who are like great when you meet them in person. So uh, was it a dinner? you're going to just love them. You'll be like, okay, I can spend like days talking to this guy. He's just so interesting. The stories and every single thing is like, they're amazing. Uh, and then comes the the whole electronic communication thing. So cold, brutal, <laughs> brutal when it comes to, you know, texting, when it comes to all of these things, like no emotions at all there. So is that common or is that like people don't know how to convey the same type of emotions or st- stuff like that when it comes to, you know, online or electronic communication? I'd say it's probably people who just, they get their energy from the face-to-face or they get their energy from from seeing the other people that they might feel like when they were in school, it might have been they were writing letters and they think, well, this is so impersonal. I can't, I can imagine that they're smiling on this, but I can't actually see them smile when I make this joke or when I write this thing. So, ah, this is, it's so cold. And they view it as cold because they don't get to have that immediate feedback from people. Um, so I do a lot of keynote speaking. I do uh, a, a lot of talks and through COVID, obviously everybody switched to online and I found it a bit difficult to be, to gauge the reaction from people. Like I'd be talking and I'd be, sta- I'd be standing in the studio and like, it, it would be a high quality production, but because you've all these little screens and everyone's on mute, you can't hear if people are like la- la- that little sensory thing of somebody laughing or twitching. But then it got even worse. Like if I had to use uh, Teams, and in Teams, everybody almost by default switches off their camera. So you're you're not even, you're talking to a screen of letters. Uh, and it was just death by a thousand cuts of, did, did anybody laugh at that joke? So there are people who, they, they just find that lack of uh, visual reinforcement to to be a real killer for them. But sometimes maybe it's just having a conversation with them saying, hey, um, it comes across a bit blunt. You're brilliant in person, but it comes across a bit blunt. Maybe you might be better off instead of sending short WhatsApp messages, send an audio, on, send a, a voice note so as we can hear the intonation of your voice or do a, a quick uh, FaceTime or Skype call or something because that can energize them and get that energy back up just uh, possible. Yeah, I, I've, I've experienced that exactly the same thing. I was teaching a class uh, chemical engineering students and then that was during the COVID days uh, teaching them entrepreneurship and then the, the whole uh, and I was so excited about that I was like okay it's going to be fun and then all of a sudden it's like no the whole class is going to be remote I was like okay let's let's fun and then then I come across Microsoft Teams they actually need to fix this thing so it's just like everybody's this initials is just like Stephen Short SS is just like on, on the top corner I had like 50 students on the same class everybody's just like initials like like people are rude. Like they just they don't want to turn the cameras off, cameras on or something like that. But in reality, like they had the camera thing off on, but you, you just cannot see anything right there. So uh, so yeah, it, it feels different. And and the whole message, the whole uh thing was like affected by that. Uh, talking about you know uh firings and is the, is there a framework in psychology that you know people can follow? in order to let people go, especially the ones that are close to. Or what's the, b- because there's like no best practice out there and then it never gets easier. You can do it like 10 times, it's going to be a, still the same pain in the end. The only thing which is consistent is the longer you wait, the harder it is. That's the only thing that's consistent. Everything else is up for debate. I mean, you've you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of the shit sandwich. I'm not sure if I can swear in your podcast or anything like that, but you've heard of that. Like good news, bad news, good news, which is so rubbish. Because I mean, at the simplest form, you're like, I like your, I like your tie. You're fired. Your shoes are nice too. I mean, that's, I mean, it, do, it just doesn't work. Um, really, if you're highly empathetic, be empathetic, but make sure that you're empathetic about the other person. I mean, it feels, it feels terrible for you, but it feels ten times worse for them because they're losing their job, they're losing their livelihood. Like you've lost sleep over. It's not about your feeling going, oh my God, you would no idea how terrible I feel. It's like, well, I've got to figure out how to feed my family next week. So I feel worse. Um, so understanding that and having that empathy. Um, so we actually have a program. We have a couple of webinars that we do um, for redundancies. 
uh, called redundancy restart, where we have some packages for companies that are laying people off because it is for HR managers, it is a, a really hard part for, for bigger organizations like the, the global things that are laying off hundreds of people. It is still a really horrendous way to spend your time. Um, and there's some support that, that they need, but ultimately it's to remember that the people who are being let go are in a far worse position and they're going to be feeling far worse. So don't make it about yourself. Understand that it's a, it's a terrible situation, but it's got to be done. Um, either from a performance point of view, if it's a performance point of view, it hopefully shouldn't come as a shock that it's a performance issue. Like you should have been having conversations about this beforehand. So it's not a, your, your monthly meetings, oh, you're great, you're great, you're great. Everything's brilliant, everything's brilliant. Then one week ago, actually, you've been really missing your numbers for the last 12 months, so we're going to have to let you go. Like, it shouldn't come as a shock to people if it's performance. If it's downsizing, yeah, it can come as a bit of a shock if the, if the company, if they don't know, they don't have, um, they, they don't have the visibility that the senior management have over, actually, we've just lost a huge client, so we're going to have to downsize by 10% or something in the general uh, across the board or whatever. It can be a real shock to people. So helping them through that um, helps them as well. Uh, and in those scenarios, that's where we have this solution for people to um, to be able to get career guidance and interview skills training online as part of that package because it helps for the people who are being let go. Okay, look, we're really sorry. Unfortunately, it's not going to be here at the moment. We're not saying that we wouldn't love to have you back when the company's able to grow a bit more, but here's some support that we want to be able to give you to help you um, on your career journey and it can help with that process but the longer you drag it out it's always going to be worth yeah I'll, I'll tell you a very funny story it's, it's, it's funny but it's like some 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 of a dark humoric you know humoristic sort, sort of a story yeah so okay so uh i i know a founder he started this company um and he built this thing like you know 10 people 12 people team something like that all remote okay and then he was like thought leader you know, in his in his own space. Uh, and he was like, from day one, he was like, focus on the culture thing, focus on the culture thing. So, you know, they spend a whole lot of, you know, um, not a lot of money, but actually some some sort of a money, okay, just building the culture and uh, helping people each other and stuff like that. But funny, funny thing is that they never actually get to a point where they can build a good culture for whatever reason. Maybe their practice were wrong, maybe whatever they were doing. They were doing that. They're spending money. They're taking steps, but the, you know the results was like not there. And then a uh, few months down the road, probably like six months, eight months, or something like that, uh, they had to let one person go purely on the performance basis. But uh, the problem was exactly the same that you mentioned. Every single quarterly review that you've done with that guy, you're a star. You know, you're amazing. Like you are unbelievably good. But we're gonna let you go. Why? Is it because of downsizing? Um, yes and no, because like we're, we're fine because we're hiring your replacement. So obviously we're fine money wise, but, uh, so we're like not happy with you. Why didn't you tell me before? Oh, we tried telling you, uh, we thought you're going to pick up, you know, pick up the pieces or something like that. Anyway, you know, uh, th they had to let, let that guy go. And then the message across the leadership board was the way we let people go tells everything about us. Okay. So it is in our values that we're going to treat people. People are like, wow, great guy. Okay. Year down the road, he just let the whole team go in his in his own problems. Like he was like, oh, like people are like not doing as much work as I'm doing. And then again, exactly when you start out, like founders can be a grinders and they can, they think it's normal to work 15 hours a day, but you just cannot expect the same thing from an employee to work 15 hours a day because one, it's not their company. Two, you're not paying them enough. Three, they don't give a damn. They can just go find another job, right? It's not being mad. That's better. So uh, that guy, uh, so one of the person lost his father. The other person had some family problems. And, like he had them, everybody sitting on a Zoom call or something like that. And that person went something like, started cracking jokes because he's hard. Now is a good time to crack jokes so he can make this conversation comfortable. And people are like watching him like that. I mean, dude, are you serious? Like you, you really kidding with us? Like you're letting everybody go in like five minutes from now and you're cracking jokes. You're asking about my health. You're asking about, did I went to the gym or not? You're asking about, what did I have for breakfast or something like that? And then that person ended up, you know, letting everybody go. So uh, so from uh, zero to 10, 12 person down to zero or one person again. And two months to two weeks, actually, 
after firing everybody, now he's thinking of, we should have hired everybody again on a contractual basis, but we should hire everybody again. Yeah, well, I don't know how many people with with a baggage or a trauma like that, I don't know how many people would want to come back for more of that, but that's, uh, yeah, it's uh, understanding your own personality, understanding the personality of those around you is, is really important um, and understanding where your strengths are, where your blind spots are, where your derailers are um is is really important as a founder yeah that that's a weird story that actually i don't know sometimes it cracks me up sometimes it doesn't it kind of reminds me of another startup that we did this um for for an investor we we did a, a markup on the the three founders and we found that one of the founder the technical founder yep perfect great personality great like matches what they're looking for in the technical founder but the other two founders which were a couple um one was just huge ambition and huge like not a lot of interpersonal skills like real driving personality to get stuff done and the partner was much higher on the interpersonal sensitivity a bit higher on the sociability a bit higher on the all the interpersonal stuff but she was the head of operations and he was the head of kind of external relations so the first thing we did is okay you guys are swapping roles because your personalities are just not like no, you're you're doing this other thing, um, and it worked, and it, it like it really gave them um, the idea of okay, we need to understand ourselves a little bit better where our strengths are, just because we've been doing this because the two of them started. She was a bit shyer, so didn't want but she, to to be the face of the company, but actually she'd grown quite a bit in confidence in the two years that they've been working together, um, but they just had stayed in those roles instead of starting to to overlap. Um, we've done other ones. I did one recently where the three co-founders and I mean, from a personality point of view and the way that they all interact with each other, it is just, it's, you couldn't have written it better the way that their different scales interact with each other. Um, and they complement each other while also having s- similar values on where the, the company's going and that, that, so they just got, uh, I think their valuation now is something like 5 million. They just did a, a another round recently. Um, and they're growing really, really nicely um, with their team. And they've done a couple of assessments with us, with their team, um, which is great. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good to hear. Uh, speaking of venture capitalists, you guys work with them as well. So uh, how can a venture capitalist um, utilize these assessments to ensure like they're investing in the right teams, they're investing in the right founders? So it, it's funny. Some investors, they don't want, the, they just, they go, look, we've invested, we like the idea, we've met the team, we think they're fine, let's go. But, I mean, you said yourself, in interviews and you, you have people, you meet them and they're great on paper, but then when you get into the weeds, yeah, they're, actually they're not that reliable or they don't actually check things that well or they're they're not quality orientated or whatever. Um, So, I mean, I would always say VCs, like if you're putting in, hundred thousand uh in, in an investment into the company you should be spending a couple of thousand of that like not a huge amount maybe two or three thousand to be able to get a really detailed psychometric assessment on the founding team and um in them individually and where they are placed within the organization to be able to to say okay i think we're kind of set or key to say okay these guys are good. We like these guys, but actually we can really see a gap right there in that side of the business that we can see very clearly now. So the first hire is actually to go in there um, because it gives you such a, a deeper, more rounded view of what the team is, their natural tendencies are, what their natural personality traits are and how they're likely to be, how they're likely to lead and where their derailers are going to be, where they're going to get themselves stuck. Uh, so having that to me is a, is a no-brainer. We've done it every company we've invested in. We've obviously done a, a big workup on the the people to understand that we've said no to one or two of them where we said, look, it's, it's not a fish. Uh, we don't think it's going to work. Uh, and we've done it for a couple of other VCs as well. But for whatever reason, uh, they just want to put the money into the business to, to help scale the business, even if it's scaling with the wrong team. Pet. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, do you think, or how can actually these assessment improve uh, self, like in, an individual's self-awareness and contribute to your like, personal development? Do you think that these assessments can help people in, a, in grow on their own? So the assessments that we use, 
they measure your reputation. So it's not how you see yourself. The, the you that you know is hardly worth knowing. Uh, it's how others see you. So it's our identity is not important. It's our reputation. And these the assessments that we use for personality measure your reputation. Hogan assessments to measure how other people are likely to see you. So that gives you, first of all, a clearer idea of it's like a, f- a fake 360. It's not a real 360, whether we've actually gone and asked because that could be outrageously expensive. Um, it's like a fake 360 that has been done on statistics. And I can go through all of the data and show you how that works. But I know from experience and working with hundreds of clients, it is incredibly accurate. Um, so it gives you a, a much clearer idea of not how you see yourself, but how other people see you. Because then when you're saying, oh, well, that's how other people are likely to see me. And there might be times when you're saying, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm, I'm a rock star. I'm going to go the way I'm going. Fair enough. Off you go. You have an understanding of where you are. But there are other people. And usually what happens is people will say, yeah, I kind of, yeah, I do kind of go off. That, that is a derailer that has caused me problems in the past. How can I, how can I do less of that? And there's lots of stuff in the report to help you, depending on what your derailer is, depending on what the scale is that you'd like to be um, more interpersonally sensitive, you'd like to be more ambitious, you'd like to be less um, uh, prudent or whatever it is that you want to do to be able to have that conversation, then there are things that you can do on your day-to-day behaviors and habit loops to be able to bring you across either left or right on one of the scales, which will also affect some of the other scales. Uh, so it can help you to develop, help you to develop to be a more effective leader and um, a, a, a better person a lot of the time. But it's it's not easy. I mean, it's not like people say, and it's a conversation that I get into a lot with people is, um, what is personality? And from a non-psychologist point of view, your personality is really just your predictable behavior, how you likes to behave. And your behavior is shaped by your internal frame of reference, which includes things like your values, your your uh, your values, your beliefs, your perspectives, and your habits. So you can change any of those things, and that will change your behavior and change your personality. But it's not easy. So when people say, "Oh, that's just my personality. That's the way I am," that's them giving them permission to say, "Well, I don't want to do the hard work to change and develop." But actually, the only way that we grow is if we start changing some of the things in ourselves and we start adapting some of the routines that we want to help us on the trajectory of where we want to go. To. So you're actually saying people can change their... I say that yeah. as somebody who knows I should go to the gym, but I don't go to the gym, so it's hard to... <laughs> okay, so you're actually saying that people can change their personality types, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's a hard work. So yeah. the, it's hard work. The easiest example, the most, the, the easiest to understand example I can give you is... Let's say that you go to a networking event. You walk into a networking event and you don't know anybody. And your habit is that you don't know anybody, your belief and everything else, you're going, oh, I'm just a bit intimidated by this. I don't know. I don't feel I belong here. Maybe this isn't right for me. And your habit is you unconsciously take a half a step backwards. And then you take another step backwards as you're looking around, trying desperately to see a face you recognize. No, no, no. And you take another step back and you're against the wall. And then you're standing against the wall and you go, geez, I look like a bit of a weirdo now. So you take out your phone, which then puts another blocker between you and other people to come up and talk to you. You're looking on your phone, you're looking around, and after five minutes you go, yeah, nobody here is very friendly. And you leave. If somebody had observed you, they would probably say that person's shy or an introvert or some of the other labels that we use to, to label people that we meet. That's how the human brain works. If you go to the next event, and just before you take that half a step back, you force yourself to take a step forward and another step, and you just walk up to the first group of people, and you go, hi, I'm Stephen, how are you? Like, you're going to feel like such an idiot. Like, the words are going to tumble out of your mouth. You're going to feel really awkward because your habit has changed. And you're going to walk away. People will forget you. You're going to feel stupid. Nobody else is actually going to think you're stupid. They're going to forget you, and you're going to move on. If you do that at every market, at every networking event for the next year, every month you go to this or whatever, you're going to get better at it. You're going to get more comfortable at it. You're going to get more confident at it. You're going to go to the next thing where you don't know anyone. You're just going to look around the room, walk up and start having a conversation with people to go, hi, I'm Stephen. How are you? What do you guys do? And somebody who observes you, who hasn't seen you before, or maybe the same person who saw you a year ago, who's forgotten about you, goes, he's very extrovert. He's very personable. 
And that's from changing your habits and your perspectives a little bit. And you change your personality. It's not as all as easy as Agreed. it, but it is yep. that fundamental yeah. idea. It, yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of hard work and then, you know, takes time to build up that that particular habit. Coming to, uh, you know, I had a point early on in, in our conversation about hiring and stuff like that. Do you think uh, relying on these assessments, psychometric analyses, or like whatever you want to call them, uh, is, is developing some some sort of a bias? Like, okay, so if I want to find, I don't know, my next co-founder, he needs to have this particular type of personality type. I, oh, she, okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I find that person. And then when I actually start working with them, they're like not a great fit for me. But they actually check those assessment tests or whatever. Do you think that that develops a bias? So one of the things about assessments is that they are they remove all of these biases. They don't actually ask gender, age, religion, any any personal information. It's all about what's the personality, what's the values of the person. This is one of the things which which allows us to be as transparent as possible. Now, in the assessment world, there are questions that some people have, uh, especially now with all the focus on DEI, um, there are some questions in some of these cohorts. So the, there's a camera, IPIP, I think, is the international, it, it's a list of thousands of items that you can ask that lead to different personalities, assessments. M- most people use their own, but the idea that some of these might have undertones, just the way they're written, might have undertones of, is this more biased towards white people or is this more biased towards men? So there's a bit of work that's going on in that. But broadly speaking, the assessments are all um, free of any kind of bias because they don't ask any questions. They, they don't use any of that data to form the reports. The bits, if you're saying, I want this, 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 and this in the co-founder, and then they tick all those boxes, but they're not actually what I want, then the problem is not with the co-founder. The problem is what you said earlier, this is what I want, this is what I want, this is what I want. So again, it comes back to the competency-based interviewing and the competency-based ideas. What do I ideally want in a co-founder? Uh, or what do I as an investor want in a founding team? Uh, and I go, I want this, 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 and this. And they all scored really high, but they're actually not doing the things they want. It's like, okay, well then your criteria was wrong because they matched your criteria on what you just decided that this is what I want these people to behave like. And they are behaving like that because that's what they've, they've matched on that criteria, but they're not doing what I want to do. So it's actually not their fault. It's your fault from the criteria point of view. Same as an interview piece. Again, coming back to that self-awareness point of view, like, you know, as, as a founder, you don't know like what you're doing. So when we do selection for companies, for example, they'll, more often than not, they'll send us a, a job spec, but they won't send us a person spec. So my default is I get on a call with them for at least 20 minutes to go, okay, you've given me this, 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 and this, but actually... You say, I want I want someone who's highly ambitious. Okay, what does that mean to you? Because ambition to one person is, I want my salesperson out there cutting deals, cutting throats, making deals, driving business in, and, and just shoehorning everything he can get into the company. And somebody else is saying, actually, I want somebody who's going to be able to work with the team to grow everybody up so as we can all go out and get that business together and everyone can have a share of the pie two very different ends of the of the ambition scale. So understanding what you actually mean by the words that you're using, that's really important. And that's why sometimes having somebody like me or uh, somebody else that, that can actually have that deeper understanding of when you say that, what do you actually mean to be able to translate that into a, an assessment? That can be um, really important. So suppose somebody starting out a company, uh, you know, they're relying heavily on psychometric assessments, finding out great people after great people, and they're hiding those great people, and it's working just fine for them. So it's a whole different world when you go from zero to 10 people, and then you go from 10 to 100 people. Like, that's a whole different thing. So uh, do you think, or like, um, yeah, do you think founders, leadership, whoever they are, they should be conducting these assessments, should be, you know, having these assessments done by all of their employees, regardless of if they are like a 10 people team or the 100 people team like or, or do you think no there has to be a point when when there doesn't make any sense like anybody can go to i don't know png procter and gamble they can hire anybody on a junior role it's not gonna matter and they can actually train that people formulate that habits that you know it, it becomes a part of their culture because they have such a strong cultural presence and values already installed in there 
So what do you think about that? So I would say you need to have some kind of knowledge of people coming in at junior levels, but any usually at the C-suite, like if you're a small team of 10 people, everybody has a dramatic impact on the culture of the business. If you go to 100 people, you still maybe have 20 to 30 people in senior to middle management that have the direct impact on the culture of the business. So those are the people that maybe, because it can get expensive, let's be honest, uh, to, to spend a couple of hundred dollars on each of the people that are coming in, especially if you've hourly rate workers and people are coming in freelance part-time, maybe you don't want to, not that you don't want to invest in them, but it doesn't make financial sense for you to be spending that money for somebody who's going to be here for three months. But C-suite and above, middle management and above, yeah, you're looking for, like, if you have it to a certain point where everybody's understanding it, because if everybody's done the assessment, let's say everyone's on Hogan and the example I gave you about ambition, everybody is using the same terminology to understand, like, oh yeah, I want that, that guy's a really high in ambition, he's going to clash with our culture because we're actually mid-ambition here. And everyone understanding using the same terminology, the same labeling. So there's no bias. It's just, this is what we understand to be what we look for in this department. This is what we look for for people in this department because that's our overall culture. His values, he's very high on altruism. So he's going to be a good fit here. Or he's very, he's very high on recognition. And we're not a recognition culture. So that's going to be a, a split. That's, that's not going to go down well. So everybody understanding the same things makes it much easier to communicate and much easier to understand people with, with shorthand. Um, when you're a small team, as I said, everybody has impact on the culture. When you're a bigger team, there are a, a smaller percentage of people who have impact on the culture. So I think it's important that those people get it. Um, but also, if you're doing it in your senior team and you're using it as a development tool, if you have 100 people and you have an internal HR person and maybe an internal uh, learning and development person to be able to develop all these people, they can use these tools to actually get their senior teams and, and the people in those teams to be more effective, to be more productive, to be able to, to get more out of them for them to grow as people within the organization. So if you were able to do that and increase your revenue or increase your profit margins by 1% or 2%, I mean, it's money well spent, especially the bigger you get. Um, so having that understanding, I think, is really important. Now, but at the same time, assessments is just a tool. It's not a, okay, you've done the assessments, now that's it. All of our answers are, all of our questions are answered. The same is in, in selection. You're using this as a tool. You're still going to have an interview. You're still going to have a conversation with them about stuff. You're not going to go, okay, that person scored perfect. You hired in there. Be quiet. So it's these are just tools to help us develop our people. It's all about again a very personal question that I wanted to ask you. Uh, a lot of the time I hear, and which is true as well, is a person who can lead a ten-person company is different than a person who can lead a hundred-person company, which is fine, which is you know makes all sense in the world. But can a person who can lead and who could be a good CEO for a ten-person company, like can you actually develop him in order to be a good? CEO at a 100-person company, maybe a 500-person company. Can you actually do that? If you can do that, how can you do that? I mean, it is possible. Uh, I'm not saying it's possible with every CEO. I'm not saying it's possible for everybody. I mean, um, I I have a big, um, I have a huge belief that people, everybody can grow into a role if they have the interest and the ability to do so, if they have the desire to grow into the role. There are some people who are like, no, this is my level. I'm, I'm really happy at middle management. I'm really happy at senior leadership. Um, or I'm much more I'm much more suited for an entrepreneurial kind of dynamic environment than I am for a corporate environment. So people understanding where their comfort is and where they want to rise to or where they want to um, where they want to have their work-life balance. And again, it comes down to uh, personal development, personal understanding and self-awareness. But you could... Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it how many countless times when companies scale up and the CEO stays on the same because they've invested in themselves, they've grown with the business. But then there are times, and I mean, I've done it, I sold a business because I knew that the next level uh, to, we had a very entrepreneurial business and we needed to grow to a bigger scale, which was going to require us to become much more uh, process driven and uh, formulaic and opening centers in different places. That's not my thing. That's not what I'm built for. It's not what I enjoy doing. So it's like, right, I'm not the right person for this next say, stage of it. So I'm going to sell it to somebody who does have that capability and does have that part in the S-curve that we were talking about earlier on. It's the optimizing part of the S-curve. That's not where I'm comfortable. It's not, it's not where I'm comfortable. I could do it, but I just I don't have any love for that area. Don't so that. Yeah. for me, 
you can grow, the CEO can grow, but it's not just, you, you can bring in as many trainers as you want, but if they have a closed mindset or a fixed mindset and they're going, no, I don't like this and we shouldn't be doing this, and they're not going to grow with the company. But if you get people who are going, this is amazing and the opportunities and the, the personal growth and the things that we can do for the world, they can grow with the organization and they have, they will be doing less and less operations. They'll have more and more assistance and people around them. So it is absolutely possible for this to happen. It's just there's a lot of factors in it. And the, the main factor is the CEO themselves, whether they have the capacity to do it or the interest in developing themselves to stretch them. To do it. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. Um, all right, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. So uh, we do have this ritual on the podcast. And what we do is we ask all our guests a question for our next guest without knowing who the next guest is going to be. So, uh, so we obviously have a question for you. And then after that. Oh, so that was the question you asked me earlier on. That the very- yeah. Yeah. N- no, not really. Okay. Cause yeah. Not really. I'm going to ask okay, you right now. I was wondering. Like, yeah. yes. Okay. Okay. okay uh, cool. And then uh, we, we're going to ask you a question at the end as well for our next guest. Because obviously not going to be part of the recording. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, the question that the last guest left for you without knowing who you're going to be. Uh, if you could write a book, what would you name it? And what would that be about? I'm writing two books at the moment. <laughs> Tell us about it. So I'm I'm so I've I've written a, a a short ebook that I'm looking to build into a bigger book called Your Next Career for people and we talked about this a bit letting people go and being able to to figure out what the next step is for people. So that's um being reviewed at the moment. But I have another book that I am writing called Build a Killer Family Business Without Killing Your Family. Uh, about succession planning and family businesses because I've grown up in two family businesses. So the, there are two books that I'm currently yeah. writing. Um, so your next career, uh, will be available on yournextcareer.com probably in the next two weeks as a free download. Uh, and then with the idea of building it into a much bigger book, going much deeper into all the topics. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Uh, and really love talking to you and thank you so much for just, you know, teaching me all these things. Amazing insights. Thank you for that. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a minute.